0: Welcome to the There It Is podcast, a comedy podcast to help you find your inspiration. I'm your host, Jason Farr. Let's do this. And what a great episode to check out to find your inspiration. We have author, storyteller, and owner of QED, Cambry Cruz, a very inspirational person. And we have a great chat. I've been excited to share it with you ever since she said yes, before we even did the interview. Real quick, I do want to mention that the New York Musical Improv Festival is going on right now, virtually. You can check it out on twitch.tv slash The Magnet Theater and It'll be great. I think some previous guests are involved, so check it out. And now, let's check out today's interview. A really great chat. And let's just get right to it. We talk about we talk about all the things, so let's just get right to it. Here's my chat with Cambry Cruz. I had been to QED several times. I knew who you were. We'd interacted with you a little bit, but we hadn't officially met. We thought you were really cool and great. And then I see you post something on on Twitter about how you're almost turning, you're, you know, in a couple of years, you'll be 50 and uh, you have braces and you are learning to watercolor <laughs> and learning to ice skate. And I thought she's a full on badass. She's just as cool <laughs> as we thought, if not more. And yeah, I, I like- just think that's great. Thank you. Yeah, you know,
1: I I feel like um, I I don't know if you know that I wrote a memoir. I uh, do. Yeah, uh, and, and oh. like you,
0: and uh, since I knew all these professional things that you had done, and
1: well, and, uh, in the memoir, I, I have it, I talk about what like the the kind of discovering what the fountain of youth was when I was in my mid 20s, early, early to mid 20s. I got divorced. I got married at 17, which is all part of the memoir. But Mm -hmm. um, and in the way that a young 20 something is, I was a little purple with my prose, you know, just flourishing words and and silliness. But Mm -hmm. but the heart of my message is very true, which about what the fountain of youth is. And that is that as long as there are books to be read, mountains to be scaled, countries to visit, uh, songs that I haven't heard, as long as there's still stuff out there that I need to learn, then I'm still young. That's Hmm. the fountain of youth right there is to always be learning and the, the interest in learning that expands your horizons and and it makes you excited about getting up every day. Yeah. And um, yeah, with the grueling, grueling workload that QED, my theater, gives me, um, it gives me, like it's a gift, <laughs> not a gift, uh, that saddles me with this anchor around my neck that is QED. This lovely little performance space is a tremendous amount of work. And the last few years of of owning it has uh, prevented me from learning and and being excited about learning new things, which is something that I've I've just always wanted and always been about. And mm-hmm. so to kind of rediscover uh, the the newness of something and turn turns out I'm actually really good at watercoloring. I had no to... idea. <laughs> it's not for me. I, my dad said he's no good at it, but he's really good at drawing. And my mother and brother both are very good at drawing with uh, charcoal and pencil pen, uh, which I'm, I don't feel I'm that great at. But um turns out yeah i can watercolor ice skating uh, is a little bit more work a little bit more <laughs> training your body but i also felt like oh i like this and it's meditative it's it's time on the ice where i can't think of anything else i cannot daydream about work and my to do list or the things that are bothering me because i i don't want to fall and hurt myself so i'm concentrating and then i'm also getting exercise and getting those endorphins going, it's, it's been really lovely. And then the pandemic. So,
0: yeah. I mean, yeah, you know, hearing about all, all of the things that you were getting involved in and just the spirit behind it on top of all the things, I mean, I already wanted to talk to you just because of QED alone, but mm-hmm. just I knew that there was going to be some extra in, inspiration from <laughs> you because of, of uh, that tweet alone. And just sort of getting a yeah. general idea of you from your Twitter.
1: Yeah, well, I didn't create QED until I was in my mid-40s. So I, I don't think it, you're ever too old to, to start something new.
0: I completely agree.
1: Yeah, yeah. The theme of my book, which is called Burn Down the Ground, mm-hmm. um, is uh, uh, the title is metaphoric. It's both figurative and literal meaning of burn down the ground. Figuratively, um Burning down the ground and starting over, and literally, as a kid, we burned down the ground to clear the the woods. We had um, we lived in snake infested forest, and so we clear the snakes and burn down the overgrowth. And what's left in the ash nourishes the soil, and it's an old agricultural technique too to to burn down your old crops and help nourish the next the next growth of crops. And uh, I, I sign my book often to, to people who are going through some changes and hard times in their life. I, I always sign it. It's never too late to burn down the ground and try again. Just start over. Yeah. Start from scratch. And I really think that's what we're kind of going through right now, yeah, the, the know, world.
0: <laughs> I agree. And I think, you know, you were talking about all of the work that, you are uh, gifted <laughs> from <Q&A. laughs> uh, this time must be a time for you to be able to slow down, recharge your batteries, reflect.
1: Well, you would think um, one would think. Uh, yeah, the first couple of weeks were an intense flurry of trying to get the building secured, get rid of. Uh, stock that was expiring, Mm -hmm. handling the influx of customer requests for refunds and reimbursement and uh, uh, questions, just a flood of calls and emails and questions. and, And then also to protect QED from ultimate failure and closure uh, to secure these grants, emergency grants and loans that the government was offering, which required, a, there was a big learning curve for everyone because it was a work in, in progress. They they scrambled to get it put together, they being Congress and, and the Senate. Uh, they scrambled to get it together. And so, to. thankfully, I'm very comfortable with legalese. I, I'm a, a licensed paralegal, and I worked in law firms and uh, banking. So I'm familiar with bank banking, foreclosures, bankruptcies, law, uh, legal contracts, all that kind of boring business stuff that comes with mm-hmm. uh, theater. And so, thankfully, I was able to kind of muddle through it on my own without uh, having to hire and spend hire experts and spend more money. But it was uh, hours and hours on Zoom calls and webinars and lobbying uh, Chuck Schumer and. Um, who's our sen- one of our senators and the local admin, uh, administration, like, uh, the local city councilman and our Congresswoman is, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Mm-hmm. So, uh, lobbying her and, um, our state Senator, Mike, Mike Janaris on all sorts of topics, like in- forcing these insurance companies to pay out on the insurance claims for business interruption, which they're all denying, uh, r- rent cancellation, just all this work, 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 work. And then of course, everybody giving me these helpful, helpful emails and, and texts, like, have you thought about applying for a loan?
0: Yes. Yeah, so and then it's <laughs> that, yeah
1: oh you're being so helpful thank you no i had not not considered the obvious <laughs> no but you know yeah, i don't want to be rude to people who are genuinely hurting right. for me and wanting to help me but it's um it, it's a little frustrating to get an an email saying well how, you you know you really should consider this it's mm-hmm. like yeah thanks thank you um and then uh yeah, And then, of course, uh, wanting to quote-unquote pivot, which if I hear that word again, I oh. I just – I am so sick of the idea of pivoting, pivoting to make online Zoom shows and uh, just scrambling the desperation to continue have producing uh, content and material. Yeah. And finally, yes. I was like, you know what? No more. Done. Yeah. So July and August, I am going to take some time, like you said, to – to Good. reflect and pause yeah
0: there there was this thing of maybe the first two weeks here in new york where people were saying like oh, i'm gonna reflect i'm gonna spend this time to slow down and then people just went back to the old habit of trying to do too yeah. much too fast
1: mm-hmm.
0: so it's yeah, gonna take sure. some time i think for all of us to really adjust to something else but i think this time has shown that we don't really have to Pound the pavement at the speed no. that we are pounding it. Oh, uh, no, thank goodness! Need to happen so 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 fast all the time in every industry.
1: No, they don't. And I think you know, it, it, I did do some Zoom shows, and they were fun at first. But then I uh, I felt myself in the same cycle and uh, desperately trying to to get the shows promoted and make sure they were well attended and mm-hmm. confirming all the uh, comics. And it's like, what am I doing this for? For 20 people uh, to to sit in their living rooms and, and to entertain them. And while that's nice and a feeling of, of that we're doing something unique and, and the quote unquote togetherness of some sort, mm-hmm. uh, it, it's nice, but it's just in the grand scheme of things, not worth it my mental and physical exhaustion and, and taxation. It's just, it's too much for one person. Oh, you know, I do sure. this by myself. I don't have any partners and yeah, it's too much. It's just too much.
0: Yeah. There's so. no real need. And and I, I do think that online content during a time like this where we have to stay at home uh, is sort of helpful and, and can be encouraging and just something to sort of take our mind off things and enjoy something, especially when people love, places like QED, uh, having a little something QED related can, can be helpful, but it doesn't have to be the nightly thing that it was. Yeah. It and I do think as much content.
1: Well, I think there was also a sense from, from some of our fans and uh, friends who were wanting to make sure that QED survived this. Right. And so they want to see that we're trying right. and it's like, Oh, I'm trying whether you see it or not. I'm, right. I've been working on almost 24 seven. And I think I've, I've secured enough of, uh, funding, unfortunately not grants per se, but at least something to, to tide us over until we're able to reopen. But, um, and I think that's helping me make, feel like I can take a pause in July and August, you know, July and August are slow for comedy anyway. Comedy is an indoor sport, you know, and it's uh, summertime, it's gorgeous, people have been cooped up, they're going to want to be out and who on earth w- wants to be inside in a time when there's no vaccine and we're all having to wear masks and stuff. Right. I just want to just take a couple of months and, you know, and as far as content goes. There's already a lot of content out right. there. Do I really need to be producing more of the same?
0: That was the thing. Yeah. I mean, uh, my yeah. theater, which I love my theater, and I'm glad that I've been able to take a part in on online shows. But at first, it was just a couple of the shows that were going on. So it was like, okay, this is nice. It's a small little thing, a sense of normalcy. But then a bunch more shows started coming before yeah. my team started. Uh, Getting brought into the mix, and it was like, "Oh, I won't be able to watch all of this." (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And I'm gonna feel a little guilty or or feel some FOMO, but there's no way to watch all of the things. It's too much. Well, you know,
1: it's it's too much, and there's, it's there, it's too much. You're right, it's too much, and also, it's not the same. It's not Mm -hmm. the same. The reason we all move to New York, and the reason we all go to these little theaters and stuff, is to be in the room where it happens, sorry to use a cliche quote from Hamilton, but <laughs> <laughs> you want to be in the room where it uh, to feel that energy. There's an energy that you can't bottle and you can't uh, transmit across the internet. Yeah. But um, the, as far as content, like I just finished all six seasons of the Americans, which was an amazing series and I'm so glad to have watched it. And I never would have been able to focus on that that. um And and that's just kind of silly TV. But um, <laughs> yeah. going back to when I had cancer, I had cancer a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. And when I was home recouping from cancer, it was right after Trump had been elected. Wow. So that was a great year. Yeah, yeah. like I know I'm like 2020 is uh, having to stay home for a pandemic and have my business shut as is pro is, is honestly, it's not as bad as when, Trump got elected, and I got diagnosed with cancer. I, I would take this over that any day. Right. Um. But uh, that that's when I actually had to just step back and and take care of myself. I had to go through radiation therapy and all that. And um, I used that time to study. I started studying at Columbia University. Uh, talk about never stop learning. Yeah. I went. I started taking classes with Professor Eric Foner, who's a Pulitzer Prize winner uh, historian, who is an expert on the Civil War and Reconstruction, with a focus mostly on Reconstruction, which uh, is an under—it's—it's it's a not a very uh, often covered topic in schools. Um, they end with the Civil War and skip right past Reconstruction or the failed Reconstruction. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, I spent two years doing a deep dive on American history and civil war his, history, trying to understand why, how and why we ended up with Trump as president and all this, what happened in Charlottesville. Mm-hmm. Um, try, and I, I went to a school with the rebel, uh, the Confederate flag is our, our motto or our flag and the rebel mascot mm-hmm. and just trying to understand it. And so I, I just spent two years studying really hardcore on that. So uh, uh do i need to make new content when there's all this uh, old stuff that is important to us now that i haven't learned about before nah
0: right.
1: nah i don't need to do a, a a 90 minute comedy show for 20 people right on the internet
0: right i i i i'm totally there with you i get, i get that i get that you know You're a really great storyteller, which is my segue into talking about why you're a really great storyteller. You've been doing it for so long. Uh, Before you started (laughs) QED, years before that, you were a a known storyteller. uh, Yeah. Got a lot of accolades for that. Um, Would you say that was a, a form of comedy for you or like, uh, and, and how you got into comedy, like where does comedy come into it for you essentially?
1: Yeah. Well, I had always been a fan of comedy as a kid. Uh, my whole family is deaf. Um, my parents, grandparents, aunts and uncles, they, they're all born deaf. Uh, my brother and I, and my cousins are hearing, but, um, having deaf, Parents meant that I could listen to whatever I wanted on television and mm-hmm. radio. And and I uh, was very young, very, very young and subscribed to a Columbia Records 12 cassettes for a penny or 10 cassettes for a penny, whatever the deal was. But basically, you got it was a subscription service. And I got um, George Carlin, Bill Cosby, Richard Pryor and Eddie Murphy cassettes and uh-huh. listened to them on repeat until the, the tape wore through, you know? Uh, <laughs> and my parents didn't know what I was listening to. It was totally inappropriate for a kid at my age. But um, <laughs> as a child of deaf adults, much more mature than other kids my age, just because I was interpreting for them and um, handling adult things, like making my own plane reservations. When I was, I flew by myself on an airplane when I was five, no, no uh, wow. chaperone or anything called, wow. made a phone call, reserved a ticket. Yeah. And flew across the state to, from Texas to Oklahoma, visited my deaf grandparents and came back. I, it's, it's crazy to me that I was able to do that at you know, five.
0: I took a trip, a plane trip in eighth grade once mm-hmm. uh, and, and alone. And when I was an adult and hadn't flown Uh, for many years, I thought back (laughs) to that and thought, like, how the hell did I do that? And it was, like, you know, so nonchalant. Uh, That's how I handle Mm -hmm. it. And probably as a a five-year-old, you're just like, yes, this is what people do.
1: Yeah, I had my little Barbie case uh, that was like a little travel carry-on case uh, that um, I've got a picture of me with holding it in the airport (laughs) before Mm -hmm. I took off. Um, but yeah, so uh, I just basically was very much into comedy at a very young age and I don't know why I truly don't know other than just television and pop culture, but why did I order those cassettes? I really don't know because I had a choice, you know, of what, uh, um, boxes I checked off on the order form. But for some reason I was into comedy and I, um, I could still to this day recite you eddie murphy delirious and eddie murphy raw um they're the two they're just they're burned into my memory bank but um so when i moved to new york i had always been involved in theater like community theater high school theater that sort of thing mm-hmm. when i moved to new york in uh 99 2000 the the fall of 99 early 2000 started coming here as a tourist and then i moved here permanently in fall of 2000 um i uh thought that i'd be involved in the theater and i was i was marketing and promoting theater and stuff broadway and off broadway but uh i quickly realized that there was a niche for comedy i was promoting these plays and there was so much effort to go into producing them but for comedy i could just get a microphone and that was it you had a show you know Didn't take much, and so I transitioned to promoting comedians who were terrible at promoting themselves. So I found a niche there. I'm really great at promotion, so started promoting comedians. One of which was my then boyfriend, now husband, Christian Finnegan. Mm -hmm. And um, from there, I started doing PR and marketing for Comics, which was a nightclub in the Meatpacking District. And um, in the basement of Comics, I opened my first theater space in New York, which was called Ochi's Lounge. Mm -hmm. It was a little 35-seater, very small, in the basement of comics. But comics was a headliner club, 400-seat major headliner club. Like very famous people came through there. Mm-hmm. So by that by association, Ochi's also had a lot of famous people come through. And it was a really great, warm little room. And I, the way I ran it, I think people appreciated it. And so when comics closed, it took my Ochi's with it. In Ochi's, um, there were a couple of storytelling shows, and they were hybrid storytelling slash comedy shows. Mm -hmm. And I want to say, in that early 2005 to 2010 era, is really when storytelling started to find its way into stand up comedy in a more mainstream way. People, because stand up comedy, people, of course, always do tell stories or jokes about their own lives, some comedians more than others. My husband, uh, a lot of his material is about our marriage, our, our dogs, travel, our family, that kind of stuff, just everyday life. But it's told in a joke format and not a, a, a narrative format. And with storytelling, you're also uh, afforded the opportunity to be a little more serious or poignant. You can People can cry. It, it's okay to be sad or thoughtful. It's not about joke after joke after joke. You know, set up punch, set up punch. And that really appealed to me because my family story is just so fraught with violence and trauma and poverty and all this horrible stuff that happened to me as a kid. But I, I like comedy. So how do I tell these stories that I'm not – I don't want to make everyone cry, but it is also about my dad trying to kill someone, you know, and that kind of thing. So, so um that's uh, Ochi's lounge being such a tiny little space, 35 seats, it being my space. So uh, I could go up when I wanted in front of a friendly audience, even though I never, I never abuse that. And I would frown upon anyone who is interested in, own, in owning a space or running a space to leverage stage time just based on that. Like you, you have to earn it just as much as the next person. I would never take, Full advantage of that. I don't know. I I find it gross, but that's a sidetrack, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. But I did get on stage and start telling the stories, and when people would tell hear my stories, they're like, "Oh my gosh, you got to write a book! You got to write a book!" And I was like, "Well, that's why I was on stage. Really, was to work out this material to see if I could find that humor in it, to see if there was a story there." And so from the stage to the page, and then I created um, my memoir proposal and. When my book came out, uh, Ochi's had had already closed, and so I went ahead and went on book tour. And I did some booking for the ninety two Y, their comedy book booking for a while, and um, but the book tour and speaking engagements really took a lot of my attention. So when that started to dwindle, in two thousand fourteen, I guess. I was like, "Well, what am I going to do now? You know, like, what am I going to be when I grow up? I don't have Ochis anymore. Comics is closed. Uh, I don't have this book really doing much anymore. What else is there?" And I'm like, "Well, I, I kind of want my Ochis Lounge back." So then I created QED, mm-hmm. and so that's how I came to have it. That's
0: an amazing story. <laughs> I, I and I just found myself just sitting here, just like. Listening, you know, and just, like, not really even interviewing anymore. It's just like listening. To I'm
1: that's sorry. A good
0: storyteller. But no, don't be no, sorry. Well, I think that's great.
1: Uh, being with a deaf family, nobody my, my, nobody told me to shut up. But also my, <laughs> my mom and dad, their nickname for me was Motormouth. And I'm like, good Lord, you know you talk a lot when your deaf
0: family calls you motormouth. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, I don't think I don't mean it that way at all I just I, it was just so easy to to like slip into listening mode like like now I'm just listening to the podcast and I'm like oh wait I'm to be questions um, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about was how you find a way to tell stories that are Traumatic stories, tough stories. Like, uh, and some of this question is coming from this context of the world that we're in, where yeah. the national discussion is about people dying from COVID and fr- and dying from police brutality and trying to f- to to fight that sort of brutality. Mm-hmm. And you know, yet I'm a comedian, and I want to be an entertainer, and I don't want right. to not ever talk about these serious issues or or things that I've experienced that are tough to talk about. But how do you do it in a way that's not gross, you know, where you're just trying to ask the audience for sympathy and that you're not cheapening the experience by just trying to make it entertainment. Like how, how do you find that balance so that it isn't just people in the audience crying and you're not just trying to get them to cry. You're, you're, having a dialogue so to speak
1: right well a couple of things come to mind first there there was a quote um from carrie fisher Mm -hmm. who's uh who said if my life weren't funny it would just be true and that's unacceptable (laughs) it's like, if there's no funny in this, then it's just true. And how sad is that? Mm -hmm. You know? And, um, she certainly didn't have as nearly a a traumatic life as I did, but I felt like that quote really resonated with me that Mm -hmm. if I can't find some humor in some of the ways that I grew up, then I will, I will just die of sadness, uh, 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 and trauma. And I, I mean, i had two deaf parents and a horse, my horse got high from eating my brother's marijuana and like there's <laughs> ridiculous stuff happened when i there is there is humor he, to be found and that's what i worked out on stage at ochi's when i was a very young performer and and i say young not in age but in experience because i'd been on stage hundreds of times in Theater. I was the lead role in *Cat on a Hot Tin Roof*, that mm-hmm. kind of thing, you know. But those are dramatic plays, and I carried the play by somebody else's words and stories in somebody else's direction. Being on stage, telling my own story, is wholly other, and it was much more terrifying. And I would get off stage, and my whole chest would be so hot and red, you could fly, fry an egg on my chest. Like it, that was it was sizzling mm-hmm. hot, and uh, now, of course, I just don't get that kind of anxiety and, and and nerves. But as a result of being a quote-unquote young performer and trying to muddle through these very dark, traumatic things, I'm certainly guilty of having exploited my story in a way or cheapening it, mm-hmm. as you said, uh, how, how to avoid cheapening it. I definitely mm-hmm. said some things for shock value more than for the laughs or the humor or the, or the poignancy or the truth or whatever. And that's what I had to work on. And I think I've gotten a lot more mature and I've matured in a lot of ways in that regard. Um, and then the, also the world has changed. I mean, when I was telling these stories in the mid 2000s in the, the meatpacking district, it's a height of sex in the city. It's the height of this, the meatpacking district was like the hottest neighborhood so it's just frivolous, a lot more frivolous I think, mm-hmm. and now of course there I don't feel like there's a lot of room for frivolity mm. with uh, the world burning around us yeah. um, but there has to be some humor there otherwise we're just all again going to just dive sadness, sadness there have got to be moments of levity and they are there how you say them is I think that's what open mics are for and that's what um yeah w- working things out on on stage in a without with low risk. That's very helpful for me.
0: Yeah.
1: Um but you know Lori Kilmartin?
0: Yeah, I'm familiar with her. Her
1: Yeah, her father was in hospice for uh, a while, uh, in 2014, I want to say it was, and he, while he was in hospice and slowly dying, and she was live tweeting it, essentially, Um, and they were, her tweets were so funny, and so dark, and so honest, and sad, and hilarious all at once, heartbreaking, and, and... just die from laughter. It was really, really great and nuanced. And I think she's somebody who really knows how to thread that. And unfortunately, as we speak, her mother is currently dying of COVID. And it was a very sudden onset. And uh, it's all happening so fast that and so she quite literally is live tweeting it on her experience. But um, she's definitely somebody I look to in in being able to find the humor in life's most dark moments, in the darkest moments.
0: Right. Yeah, I mean, it sort of also reminds me of Julia Sweeney's uh, God Said Ha.
1: Yes. Yeah, you know what? I watched that when I was thinking of turning my stories into a one-person show mm-hmm. and, or in memoir. Yeah, I, that was one of the my what do you call it your p when your your studies uh, case
0: studies (laughs) oh yes yes yeah you know it's a good point that you make about you know like sort of cheapening something to get the laugh you know because there is that temptation when you know Mm -hmm. that you can say something i i I think that's the thing i've been met with when i've shared stories like recently i've shared stories Mm -hmm. about um you know, racist or racially insensitive incidents that I experienced. And, you know, I'm the one that's speaking on the story and I, and, uh, there were times where I thought like, this was my perception of what they meant, but it's not exactly what they said. And I can't say that it's what they meant or what they said, you know? So there is that sort of moment where you can say something that you realize, oh, that'll get a big reaction from people. Is that really fair to do to the other side of this story?
1: Right, right. And, right. and, and, and yeah. that's,
0: you know, it. that balance seems to be there, you know, that balancing act of, well, just the facts then, you know, like all I can say is what the experience was like for me and how right. I took it personally
1: this comes up a lot with the one in talking about rape jokes. Like, can you make jokes about rape? And people have proven that you can, it depends on who is saying it and what the purpose is. Right. And right. how it's framed. Right. There's exactly. a joke. I'm, I'm remembering one of my shock value ways that I used to say something in my early days of storytelling that it was pure shock and it always got a reaction. But I, and so I, I as a, storyteller being on stage, I appreciated the reaction, but now in retrospect, I realize, oh, that was the wrong kind of reaction and also not fair to the audience for me to have done that to them. Mm. Um, It's, uh, it's shocking them for, for the pure shock value or just to get a rise out of them. Um, uh, basically my dad, he, he, um, he tried to kill a woman Mm. and he being deaf, the, he didn't hear the cops breaking in, mm. and so I, I that I framed it. I'm trying to remember because it's been a long time since I phrased it this way because I don't do it anymore for obvious reasons. But basically, um, so my dad tried to kill a woman, and since he's deaf, he didn't hear the cops break in. That's or that's what happens when you're deaf. You don't hear the cops break in mm-hmm. when you're stabbing someone to death, and so you get caught red-handed. And mm-hmm. and so now, in retrospect, I realize, oh no, that's just l- gruesome and unfair to everyone. And I, yeah, I, I don't like that I said that in that way. But it's you know it's part of the process of, and I do think that's why you see comics getting in hot water a lot. You know, uh-huh. they're 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 trying to find the funny in some things that are really delicate, and it exactly. can be done. Yeah. But can. how do you try that out? Yeah, and how do you try it out? Somebody's going to hear it and get offended, and you got to you've got to figure it out. And that's what that's why having quote unquote safe spaces mm-hmm. um, to perform at a, a place like QED, a place like Ochi's used to be, where you feel safe trying something out on the audience, where you're not going to get burned for it. Right. But you might find out that the joke doesn't work, and oh, I should never say that again. But mm-hmm. you need to mm-hmm. have a place to try it. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, that's something I'm hearing a lot from stand-ups is like, you know, please don't record me working material because it's an unfinished Mm -hmm. product and not a clear representation of what I'm trying to do. Right, right. And it it isn't fair. And I think there's always that one person in the audience who this is maybe their first stand-up show or something, and they just don't get that about (laughs) what's happening. They also just don't get what doing comedy is.
1: Yeah, that's frustrating. It's like, why did you come here then? Yeah,
0: yeah, I mean, you know, they just, I guess, see a couple things on TV and they think it's going to be exactly like that. And it's like, no, yeah, it's yeah. messy. This is making sausage. <laughs> this is, <what laughs> this is how the sausage open is made. Right? Yeah. <laughs> it's, that is what it is. It's it's somebody trying to find the right language. I mean, I I always come back to this example, but Chris Rock was talking about a bit he did about the Janet Jackson. Um, it's a bit he did in special. specials about Nipplegate. And he, in the special, he's making fun of her for doing it. He's saying, Nobody wanted to see that. That's basically the angle of like, ah, oh, we didn't need that. And he said uh-huh. afterwards in an interview, I had jokes from both sides of that of wanting that and not wanting it,
1: uh-huh.
0: of it's good and it's bad. It's just the uh-huh. jokes that did the best were the ones that ended up in the special, which were the ones that yeah. were saying she shouldn't have done it. And that's what comedy is to me. is people trying to find a way to make a joke that's going to get people to laugh about mm-hmm. a topic. And it's not always that person's actual opinion. Now, of course, within that, there's a legitimate discussion about, but should they still do the joke? Right, uh, is it going to cause harm? Uh, is it going to is it going to muddy the discussion, the serious discussion that people are having separate from comedy, about these right. topics? And I think that's completely fair, and I and I think that's where um, that's where there's a discussion about rape jokes. Like I was never into them, so I just said, well, just don't do them if people don't like them. But obviously, as you pointed out, there are people who found a way to mention to to delve into that topic during their comedy and it's right not and uh, belittling let- the uh, like assault victims and it's not trying to belittle the severity of what rape is so it's like okay well some people have found a way i just don't know it and maybe <laughs> it's not worth my time doing it but
1: and, and now yeah and if you let's say uh you had been um a- assaulted or mugged or you know, you're right. the either the victim or maybe th- you were falsely accused or something like that and you're telling it more from your perspective then you can talk about it's your life right who should ever re- restrict you from ever talking about your life what no matter what the topic is it's your life right and where where do you mind your material right and most people mine, yeah
0: and I, that's one of the things that I didn't really like about the way the discussion of rape in comedy was framed, because mm-hmm. it was like Lindy West and Jim Norton, one saying, don't do it. And the other saying you can't. It's like, okay, but Jim, you're not coming from a perspective of having been assaulted. Right, right. You're just saying people should be able to talk about well, who, what people, the people yeah, who right. are mining their own experience. Or people who just want to make light of a subject that's really sensitive and maybe shouldn't be made light of. like
1: Yeah, and, and I always wonder, like, what is the, the end goal? What is your what, – what's your impulse to want to talk to, about something that really has no bearing on your uh, – yeah. And, I mean, we've all been – we all know someone, whether you know it or not. Maybe, so maybe that would be their their shoehorning their way into the discussion.
0: Yes. Yeah. uh yeah. yeah it's a it's definitely a challenge to find ways to talk about something that is going to be sensitive to other people in your comedy or in your storytelling
1: yeah and, i've um yeah. wondered about what with my dad um you know he when he gets out of prison I've wondered am I going to have to scrub the internet from all my jokes and and stories and stuff because not not because I he he knows about my book he's read my book um and he I've supported him through his prison sentence so he knows that I'm here for him and that I love him mm-hmm. for better or for worse but um he, him being deaf um trying to explain sarcasm to deaf people is so hard oh my gosh yeah uh, yeah, well, especially generational uh, the, of his generation, like younger deaf people, they're exposed to they've uh, more media as a result of closed captioning mm-hmm. and the um, just the internet in general and everything being closed captioned and stuff. But people of his generation, where there was no closed captioning, there was no uh, wide access to radio. I'm sorry, television and of course, radio was not accessible. You know, it, and then just the way humor has changed over the years. And it's, it's really difficult to explain humor to him. And then on top of it, sarcasm. Mm-hmm. And then it's about him and us and my crazy childhood. So I, I've wondered and worried about that. But then at the end of the day, I'm like, but it's my life. If, and, um, uh, and I think it's Anne Lamott who said, if they didn't, if people in your life didn't want you to talk badly about them, then they should have treated you better. Oh, I love I, I've that. butchered that quote.
0: And I get, the yeah, point, I've though, butchered I it. And I think that. it's Anne
1: Lamott, but yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's so, something that it's I like,
0: have struggled with in my comedy. It was like, I don't talk about my family and my comedy because I don't want to say something. And then my dad be like, well, you know, what's that all about? <laughs> you know? Yeah. But
1: You it, still want to be able to go home for Thanksgiving. <laughs>
0: right, right. And it could be the slightest thing and it could be still like a problem. Yeah. And I can't imagine talking about being able to talk about what you've talked about. What are some of the hurdles you felt like you had to overcome, if any, to to find the courage to talk about your experience? Is it really just that, like, well, this was my experience and, and you just stayed on that laurel or, or was it... Um,
1: no, I, I tiptoed into it because I, I, want, I love and respect my mom and, um, and my dad. Uh, in spite of all his flaws, uh, I have a, a lot of respect and empathy for him and their childhoods of being deaf in rural Oklahoma, being raised in a deaf school, which was um, like boarding school where they lived off, away from home their whole lives. Not my mom. She went when she was later, but her, her younger sister went when she was a child, like four, four and a half years old, mm-hmm. being left to live in dorms, like an orphanage, and um, not having access to language and just the struggle, the, uh, what their childhood must have been like. And uh, so I, I wanted to be sensitive to, to what a uh, difficult life they've had. And yes, they made my life difficult in different ways. But, you know, life is, has been hard for all of us and right. how to how to talk about it and be respectful to them. So I definitely tiptoed into it partly, first of all, by doing live storytelling. So like you said earlier about not recording my set, hey, I'm, I'm here working on this. Please don't put this on the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I did start to kind of, Put it out there, quote unquote, out there into the world. I started a blog that was all about uh, letters and stories about my jailed deaf dad. Is how I titled it, mm-hmm. and um, it was just little little tidbits about my childhood, like like my horse getting high that I mentioned earlier, and then some more darker stuff. But it being a blog, I was a little bit more thoughtful about typing it out in a, a not, not necessarily journalistic way. It was still storytelling, mm-hmm. but threading the humor and the jokes in there and just see what would happen in the deaf community. How would the deaf community react to it? How would my family react to it? And then I just started getting a little bolder and bolder. So it was baby steps. I definitely tiptoed into the, the deep end. A lot of people are afraid to write memoir for that very reason, though.
0: Oh, yeah. Even along the lines of what I was talking about of, uh, you know, I'm the one sharing here and and there's this other person isn't getting their say into the discussion, you know, they don't get to defend themselves. Right. Um,
1: right. I know that's so important, too. I, I love Augustine Burroughs' um, uh, Running with Scissors, and his first book. I th- well, it might not have been his first, but the uh, I, I really enjoyed that one very much. And then he wrote another follow-up about the um, his father that was more focused on his father called A Wolf at the Table. And that one felt a little bit more, I don't know, it just, it scorched earth and really, really dragged his father. And his father was dead and couldn't defend himself and felt a little uh, mommy dearest. Mm. Uh, people pan mommy dearest in that in the memoir that it was based on joan crawford's adopted daughter mm-hmm. uh, wrote this scathing memoir about her mm-hmm. uh, for the same reasons like you're you're it's it's like you're trying to settle a score mm-hmm. and it's ugly and it's dark and yes life is ugly and life is dark and this person probably deserves to be dragged that way but is there no love or respect here at all and i don't know there's a fine line there that yeah some yeah i was gonna say I, that i'm not comfortable yeah. with other people yeah. are very much comfortable <laughs> with it when i have expressed that right. feeling before some other people have t- said to me no drag them drag them my dad's family in particular Yeah, but uh, I, you know.
0: I blanch at people who want the tea just for petty mm-hmm. sake And Mm -hmm. I think that slips its way into some of these things where they they don't want to drag the person to support you to say, hey, you know, right your chest. They're saying like, yeah, F them. Right. They want vengeance for something that they really can't call for vengeance for because it didn't happen to them. Right. And it's just like they want something to, they like gossip.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: And and I I don't like that part of things, and it happens yeah. all the time on Twitter. And I think it messes up a lot of the discussions around serious topics. Sometimes, like obviously, mm-hmm. there are people like bots and whoever who are just actively trying to destroy the discussion. But but they're like people talk about cancel culture, which I hate the phrase.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, mm-hmm. But. What they are addressing is this sort of culture around people who are canceling, or or seeking to cancel someone, just for the sake of the gossip, the thing Mm -hmm. to talk about, and not because they actually think this person needs to be uh, needs to explain themselves or something they did, or or doesn't need to be in the position. Like they don't care about that part of it, the serious part of it. It's a gross thing that I see on Twitter, and I don't like it. Yeah. And it's not everyone. It's very gross. T- yeah. It's not everyone. I just want to say it's not everyone who is saying who is calling out somebody. It's right. the people who seem to be thirsting for some juicy sort of gossip who messed this yeah. stuff up.
1: Yeah, it's the uh, out for blood. Uh, um, definitely, uh, there's... There's an ugliness to it that that negates any opportunity for nuanced discussion and right. thoughtful thoughtful discussion. Uh, life is complicated, mm-hmm. and it would be very very easy for anyone to dismiss my father as garbage, worth not worth uh, saving. He's right. he's a violent offender who you know abused my mother and tried to kill her and now is in prison for trying to kill another woman mm-hmm. the the one of the worst of the worst kind of when you think about the people who are uh, uh, universally hated society. in society mm-hmm. um but if i had just um scorched him in in my book and really eviscerated his character and, and wrote, oh, uh, about my childhood and what a terrible, terrible dad and person this man was. I don't know that it would be a book anybody would want to read. It would be like that mommy dearest. Right. But the thing is, is my dad was actually a really great dad. He's freakishly smart. He was really sweet and kind to me as a kid growing up. Um, uh, he's, Taught me everything about construction and uh, driving a stick shift and all those things that dads are supposed to do. But above and beyond that, he's – and then when I started going through his life and his childhood and realizing how terribly abused he had been physically and verbally and uh, then, of course, being abandoned at deaf school and the trauma of that, it traumatized him that – being left at that school uh it it really made me realize wow this he's been through a lot a lot and what do bad what uh uh, here's another uh, um quote i guess that that helps frame it for me is that um hurt people hurt people yeah the b- bad behavior is the language of the wounded. If you are hurt, you end up hurting mm-hmm. other people around you, and that it really is—it's as simple as that. His whole life, he had been hurt terribly, mm-hmm. and he was lashing out from that hurt. And he's never properly been uh, given any kind of treatment or therapy or understanding or in- empathy for any of the trauma that he's been through. I was like, well, what if we just took some time to to take care of him? What if he were just taken care of and see, would that help him? And so I was like, you know what? I'm going to try. So the whole time he's, not the whole time, it took me a few years of him being in prison to kind of realize and reckon with that, mm-hmm. that I was like, okay, I'm going to be his best pen pal, his biggest advocate, and... Make sure and I've been honest with him that I don't believe his his stories about how this woman ended up in the hospital that he was trying he wasn't trying to kill her she was trying to kill herself herself and he was trying to stop her, which is just horseshit you know mm-hmm. and it's um I think it's just too hard for him to grapple with the idea that he actually did this to a person and what on earth would i how, why would anybody love him if he admitted that he had done this. So it it's ca- hard for him to reconcile with it. But I've I've gotten around to where we've talked about it openly and he's admitted his faults and and he knows that I still love him and it's mm-hmm. he's cried and cried and cried over it. So I think that's good.
0: Yeah, I think it's really Inspiring. I mean, I don't want to overuse the the phrase here, but to the amount of searching within yourself to find love for him is is profound. And yeah. I think sharing that story, which I appreciate you sharing again here, um, I think sharing that story is very educational for a lot of people because there are a lot of people who do want to be black and white about things. And I I, I wouldn't be surprised if you have faced criticism for publicly saying you love them. Um,
1: surprisingly not. Uh, I do feel like what people have said, maybe this isn't a criticism, but uh, it's a, I don't think I could ever do that. Mm. That is what I hear from some people, not everyone, but um you know i used to be pro death penalty i i was raised in texas you know mm-hmm. justice <laughs> i want justice
0: mm-hmm.
1: you don't do the do the time don't do the crime if you can't do the time mm-hmm. no empathy and um it's taken me a long time to realize um uh, just, I, I've I've come to my own reckoning, I guess, of of just how I was raised and a little bit of a, or maybe not even a little, a lot of brainwashing that Texas did to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm I'm sad for for the young people who are grown up there who are not getting. A more proper education, I guess, on uh, (laughs) on some of the ways the world, and not to not to poo poo the whole state. Obviously, there's uh, I I grew up there. (laughs) My parents grew up there.
0: Huge state, lots of different things uh, going on.
1: Yeah, yeah, but uh, in the education system, that never you know, uh, and in the way that the political leaders uh, are when it comes to crime and justice and and guns and uh, even our, our quote unquote Southern heritage and stuff. Uh, Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's all, it's all been very frustrating to, to come to a reckoning of that. Mm -hmm.
0: And how, you how do you, I, I think one of the things that I marvel at is having, is that you have gone through these things and you still have the big heart that you have uh, a heart as big as Texas, <laughs> and you are—you know—you are <laughs> it, you know, you're engaging this world with trying to be inspired. I mean, uh, and trying, trying to be, uh, trying to find that joy in the world and learn more, and that the fountain of youth that you were talking about. Mm. I mean, that. What What sort of advice do you have for anybody who's trying to seek that too?
1: Well, I do think that there is a big wide world out there that it's worth uh, learning about for sure. And, um, I didn't, I didn't know that I really actually was a huge history buff until I started studying, uh, during my cancer treatments. I, I had no idea how much I loved history and like, it turns out I really love history and it's cause I had a bad history teacher who sh- he showed us Holocaust films and took naps. He was a coach. He was a football coach. Yeah. That was my history teacher. Yeah, he didn't teach us anything about history. Um,
0: That's everyone's so, experience, it sounds like.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I know. Well, in high school, I will say I did have a really great social studies teacher in sixth grade, Dr. Meeker, if he's listening. He goes and visits my dad, actually, every now and then. But um, he's uh, he was a very, very good sixth grade teacher. But that was sixth grade, you know. That was one, one year. And uh, high school, I did not have great history um teachers but um how uh, for for watercoloring or i actually let me go back i think my husband is the opposite of me in this regard in a lot of ways that i'm constantly striving to learn new things and i say yes to everything and so 2020 was going to be the year where he was going to be more like me he was he joined he i gave him a passion planner which is just a basically a it's a, a journal to help organize your calendar and your goals, short-term and long-term goals. Mm-hmm. And this isn't an ad for Passion Planner, but I would highly recommend it or something like it. I supported Pas- Passion Planner in their early Kickstarter days, and now they're like a multi-million dollar business. They're they're just really great, well-formatted journals that help organize your goals. Okay. And so I gave him one of those, and, uh, and he's vowed to use it in the way that it's supposed to be used and um in 2020 was going to be the year and so he started being i I don't want to put it like uh, that he was being more like me but that's kind of like what he was doing he was just trying to be more like me where he was saying yes to things and he was setting forth some goals and trying new things and because he was seeing me learning to ice skate and watercolor and all that so i signed him up for a choir And so he started going to a choir. He started setting forth all these uh, goals for his personal life and for his work life. And and he was seeing results. And then, of course, bam, bam, wah, wah. (laughs) (laughs) I know, but it was working. And so I guess the the advice is just to say yes to trying new things. Like, what are you afraid of, really? Like, you're, oh, it costs money to ice skate, of course. So there's that. If, mm-hmm. But if you have uh, the the little bit of, it's not that much money, you know, save up right, for it or right, find right. something a little cheaper uh, or borrow some skates and see if you like it a couple of times. Or with uh, with watercoloring, I didn't, I bought uh, a super cheap, the cheapest, which were like $5 watercolors or mm-hmm. something. Uh, so it's not a big investment. And I started taking lessons on YouTube, just looking at YouTube tutorials. And uh, learning how artists use outlines versus free free sketching or uh, or free painting without an outline, and I, I started out small, and I was like, "Yeah, I actually am really good at this." But um, uh, saying yes to stuff, I mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't yeah, know. I like that. What?
0: Saying yes to things because I mean, now I, I I was never good at roller skating or ice skating. Um, so I've just continued to not try them.
1: Uh, uh, yeah. Have, well, you don't I want have, to hurt yourself. <laughs> right.
0: Well, I have an irrational fear of uh, uh, breaking a bone because I've never broken one yeah. before. So now I'm just like, make sure you never break a bone. because, like, I, <laughs> I just feel like for some reason, breaking a, a bone as an adult is going to be a bigger problem than it would have been if I was in like probably. Probably.
1: Yeah, um. <laughs> the healing process. Yeah, uh,
0: yeah. So I'm just like, no, 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 nothing that can potentially. <laughs> lead, <laughs> well, I lead, did also do that. Lead to that.
1: Uh, I started swimming, uh, and it turned out uh, I didn't really like it. Like I liked <laughs> swimming actually a lot. I did, um, and I it was harder than I thought, and I got mm. some exercise out of it, and yeah. it was uh, I, I thought a low impact exercise, yeah. but I hated the whole having to shower afterwards and get my hair dried because mm-hmm. you know with women and long hair and it was just too much uh, of a
0: time commitment in that <laughs> yeah. regard so
1: I but I wouldn't have known too. that yeah
0: and yeah. I had that so it is way harder than you realize to like exercise yeah. swimming because I went to do it yeah and like the first time I was I, I was just in there a few <laughs> laps and I was zonked I was like I need to work <laughs> out so I can do this workout like I'm not in the <laughs> yeah. place.
1: <laughs> yeah, I was like gul- gulping air and water and like <gasps> flopping around. I looked like a giant fish <laughs> just that had just gotten left out on the sidewalk kind of thing. You know, just like floundering, flopping around and gasping for air. It was terrible. I was not very good. But I I did get better. But again, it was just more the 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 gear and the the time involved in everything. Um, yeah. but uh, really, honestly, a lot of the stuff that I try or, or explore has a lot to do with history lately. The last, I would say since 2018, 2017, as, uh, um, I started exploring, um, First after Civil War and Reconstruction, then I moved on to the Revolution, American Revolution, and then um, early New Amsterdam, which is uh, the first Manhattan, used to be New Amsterdam instead of New York, uh, when the Dutch were here and exploring Dutch, early Dutch history and um, the 17th century dutch history does not appeal to a lot of people but i for whatever reason you know got really into it and i'd planned a trip to amsterdam so i could sit in the library for a week and then but covid interrupted that trip but i was going to go by myself because i'm like i'm not dragging someone across the world to sit in a library with me but (laughs) i wanted to
0: (laughs) uh well that's that's all i love this and i i want to Keep talking forever, but we are at the end of the episode. We should read oh, something together. You to
1: reminded there.
0: me. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Before, yeah. Uh, you just reminded me, though. Duh. I can't believe I didn't say this. That's actually part of why QED, I made um, QED not just a little performance venue, but also a learning center so that we have adult classes. So embroidery. And sign language, and PR, and podcasting classes, swing dancing classes, art classes—all of them were as a way to learn new things because those are the things that weren't interesting to me, but I didn't want to have a big time investment or a big money investment. So all the classes are either a one-off class or maybe some of them are two or three sessions, but very low time commitment, just enough to get you on your feet to see if like, if I really like this, then I can go and explore and invest more money into it. But I hated that if I wanted to learn how to watercolor, it was like an eight week course, $800 or something crazy, you know? And I was like, no, I just... I just want to see if I'm any good at it. Right. And, uh, I, and I'll borrow your materials. And if it turns out I'm good at it, then I'll go buy my yeah. own. Yeah, so, yeah, that's, that's a, actually a lot of the inspiration for QED. I can't believe I didn't make that connection before. <laughs> oh, done with me. All right. Sorry. Anyway, I know we're wrapping up.
0: <laughs> well, QED is a dope place. We loved it so much. It's uh, far from us, so we don't go as much as we want to go. But if we move to Astoria like my girlfriend, girlfriend of the show, Justina wants to, then we will well, go a bunch because uh, she really loves Astoria. And I, we loved everything we've been to. We've been to a lot of different things there. And it's a really, I think it's one of the best clubs in the city. And I've, if I, I I've said a bunch of times on the podcast that I kind of slipped away from doing stand up upon moving here. Cause I didn't like a lot of the rooms. QED was yeah. never that room. It was the main room if not the only room that i loved and yeah if, it's and a good I, room if i lived near qed mm-hmm. um and not wasn't over an hour away from it i probably would not have stopped doing stand up because that's how
1: yeah we got to get is. brooklyn and queens better connected i can't believe how what the commute is between you the you two go to Manhattan;
0: it's like an hour and 15 minutes yeah. or something it's ridiculous um, yeah. But let's create something together here. Um, I feel like what mm-hmm. we've talked about the most, maybe, is storytelling. So, or, or, like, telling your story, whether it's through comedy or a story telling uh, spot or something like that. But just sharing your personal experiences that are tough, or maybe even not tough. What could, what sort of guidelines could we give people to starting that journey?
1: Mm. Well, finding a place to perform is first and foremost very important. Going and watching storytelling shows. Uh, if you want to start out with baby steps, maybe listen to the Moth Podcast and risk podcast and um, some of this American life to mm-hmm. just really immerse yourself in storytelling done by others. Mm-hmm. But the moth is great because you'll, it's, you'll hear people who are not professionals getting up and telling their stories. And the moth um, website has some great tips on how to do that. And then you should just get up and try it. I uh, try it at an open mic. And we say, my husband and I always tell people this when it comes to comedy, mostly, but uh, when people are asking how do they get started in comedy, just go to an open mic. You have to get up on stage and try it. The more you do it, the better you get. It's like with anything else, not the ten thousand hours necessarily, but um, until you break that that uh, that um, fear of getting on stage, it, it, you you never will. you'll you just have to get do it. You just have to
0: do it. Mm-hmm. Get on stage. There it is. Thank you so much. That's it. It's that easy. Yeah, I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much for being on the podcast, Cambry.
1: Thank you for having me. I was so delighted that you reached out to me. So, thank you.
0: And we were so delighted to have her on. And I hope you enjoyed that. If you want to know more about her, you can go to cambrycruise.com. You can also go to qedastoria.com and find out more about QED. And you can follow her on Twitter at Cambry. On Instagram, at Cambry C. And you can follow QED on Instagram, at QED Astoria. And you can follow Cambry on Facebook, at Cambry Cruise. Don't forget to follow us, at ThereItIsPod, on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We have links in the bio for all of the things. And we also have a newsletter. Check that out. We have a lot of good information that we curate. It's free. It's every Monday. Until next time, be good to each other.